Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I am Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, joined by Jacobin Staff Writer Megan Day. What's up, Megan? Hi, Micah. Nothing much. I'm excited about today's episode. Um, Today we've got Josh Davis, who is the co-founder and executive editor of the Institute for Christian Socialism. And Josh teaches theology and ethics in the Anglican Studies Certificate Program at Drew University School of Theology. And we also have Aaron Anderson, who is also a co-founder of the Institute for Christian Socialism and is the managing editor of its publication, The Bias Magazine. I know you're excited about today's topic. Yeah, I mean, as listeners to this podcast probably know, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I grew up as the son of a Lutheran pastor. And people on the left are often kind of baffled by my biography when I tell them about it. And they assume when they hear that I am the son of a pastor, they're like, well, so when did you make your big break with your father's Christianity? And I have to tell them that uh, never. In fact, the politics that I have today as an editor of a socialist magazine don't seem like they are in contrast to any part of the Christianity that I grew up with. In fact, they feel to me like an extension of it. And uh, people don't really know what to do with that. I think for various reasons. Uh, One, you know, when leftists think of Christianity and religion generally, they tend to zero in, maybe understandably, on the right-wing manifestations of it that are at the centers of power in this country and in the world. Uh, But also there's this long tradition on the left that we get into in this conversation about just viewing any sort of religion at all as being this, you know, this opiate of the masses, as Marx famously wrote. Although, as I think we get into here, he had more to say about religion, even in that quote alone, than just that it was the opiate of the masses. Um, but, but yeah, there's this like sense that uh, you know, religion is the, the central to the socialist project for many socialists is uh, to be be gone with the these old superstitions of the past. And uh, for various reasons, some of which we, we talk about uh, with Josh and Aaron, I don't find that compelling or helpful. And I, I think that uh, religion uh, and Christianity specifically for me has a lot to say as, as, as a part of this project that we're all a part of to try to remake the world for the better. Uh, so I was glad to be able to talk to them about that. Yeah, I've been following the Institute for Christian Socialism pretty closely lately, and I've been finding a lot that's valuable in what they're doing, especially in the last few months when a couple of things have been happening in my own life. One is that I had a really terrible family tragedy, and another is that I, like many people on the left, have been transitioning from the Bernie phase that sort of spans from roughly 2015 to 2020 to whatever comes next, and it feels like we're in a little bit of an interregnum right now. Both of those have given me a lot of reason to pause and examine my priors and to sort of sit with what my beliefs and principles are, my my baseline beliefs and principles that are informing my political commitments and also just the way that I live my life in general. So, you know, I surprised myself enormously by, you know, I was taking, you know, I was too rattled by the, um, what happened was that my, my teenage brother overdosed and sustained brain damage. And so I got on a train. I was too shaken to drive, actually, to go be with my family. So I got on a train and rode through the desert overnight from Los Angeles to Albuquerque. And I um, was reading Thomas Merton on this train. And if you had told me a year ago, like, 
you know, this is what's, this is what it's going to, this is what you're going to be doing at this time. I would have not necessarily believed you. Um, but I think that what's, what, what's been happening for me is that I've been in a time of exploration and I've been drawing from very diverse sources during this time of exploration. And I've been, you know, I've been finding that Christian writing has been a part of that process for me, um, in part because, whatever sort of like the specific religious aspects, there is an emphasis in a lot of Christian writing on a sort of um, universalism that really corresponds to my own priors that give rise to my socialist political commitments, a sort of universalism and an insistence on common humanity. So that has been what has been alluring to me about, about Christian writing. What you just said about, finding this kind of solace and reading the writings of someone like a uh, Thomas Merton to me gets at what I've always found about Christianity. Why I've never felt the need to reject it is that it at its best in the, in the kind of Christianity that I've engaged with in my lifetime has not been a force for sort of making me retreat from the world and retreat from examining the, things that are going on in my life and, and, and how I live my life in, a, in an honest and ruthless way. It's, it's actually always pushed me to, to be more rigorous and, and be more sort of forceful about um, what's going on in my life, like, like wrestling with tragedy in the case that you're talking about or wrestling with my own idolatries, which is something that we get into in this conversation. I mean, it, it, it's always been a force in my life. Religion has always been a force in my life. Uh, that has has forced me to be a better version of myself and sort of more ruthlessly interrogate uh, myself and the world around me, which is why I have never felt any need to reject it. And it's also why, obviously, I think that Marxism is a, a similar force that can uh, get us to do that kind of interrogation of, of uh, at least the world around us. Um, and so it's it, it's always been that force for good in my life. And uh, I think that it, it, for other people, it can be too. Yeah, and to your point, I think that today's guests don't see a fundamental incompatibility between Christianity and Marxism and are in fact trying to use the Institute for Christian Socialism to build toward a new synthesis. And without further ado, here's today's episode. So thank you guys so much for being here. It's great to be here. So first things first, I want to know what is the Institute for Christian Socialism? And I also want to know what its purpose is and, and why you felt the need to launch ICS at this particular political and cultural moment. Okay, yeah. So the Institute for Christian Socialism or ICS, uh, we're a nonprofit organization uh, and we're committed to organizing the Christian left and to combating the rise of the reactionary right in politics and theology and the church. So we were launched in uh, publicly in November of 2019, uh, so we're just over a year old now. Um, we're an ecumenical organization, which means that we work with all different kinds of Christians. We're not associated with any particular confession, um, and we are essentially committed to an emancipatory political project of mass democracy and democratic socialism because we don't really see any possibility for a Christian to even claim the name today without fighting for economic democracy. But uh, we also think that it's very important for us not to hedge our bets when it comes to commitments to anti-racism, feminism, uh, queer liberation, anti-imperialism, these kinds of things. Uh, these are dehumanizing. And so we, uh, 
we think they don't really have any place in Christianity. So, um, so those are those are our basic commitments. And some folks that are involved in this this project that uh, the audience might be uh, aware of uh, or know about, like Cornell West, uh, Kazimbe Balagoon, uh, Jorg Rieger, Andrew Wilkes, Gary Dorian. These are some folks that we've been working with very closely in leadership positions. Um, and uh, there's basically we have two different components of the work. We're we we're working facing toward Christians, right? We're engaged in uh, work among Christians, but also working to develop solidarity and dialogue with the broader left. So we this part of this arose because we became like we all were engaged we we're members of dsa well not all of us are members of not all of the members of the institute are members of dsa but but all of us that were co-founders of the institute were members of dsa we have been engaged in uh like thinking through these issues for quite a long time and uh at mostly we met one another at vanderbilt divinity school and our teachers pressed us in these directions our own development uh uh, intellectually went in this this way. And we we realized that like a lot of the intellectual and organizing energies of socialism today are largely emerging from outside the churches. But we had really cut our teeth on this, this deep socialist politics within Christianity that was almost dead. And so we really committed ourselves to reawaken this, this awareness of this, to educate Christians about it and begin the process of organizing Christians to get involved and socialist politics. And so we want to organize and, and we're uh, hopefully later this year in July, we'll be rolling out a membership model for, um, for people to get actively involved directly in what we're doing and to further and realize the mission of ICS. Um, and then things like this, like entering into dialogue about the relationship between Christianity and socialism with the broader left and talk about misconceptions tensions, uh, ways we can learn from and strengthen each other, that kind of thing. What would you add, Aaron? Yeah, uh, that's a great start, Josh. I mean, I think it's important to emphasize um, the distinctiveness of a Christian organization that is explicitly focused on uh, building power, right, with the left. Um, and so I think one, one thing that has informed the kind of rationale for ICS, its mission, um, is an analysis that we have of what's happening on the right, right? Not just the left, but what's happening on the right, and especially the Christian right. Um, as I'm sure your readers know and listeners know, uh, there's been an explosion of literature, right? Academic and popular, uh, that traces the history of organizing and coalition building efforts on the right over the last hundred years. Um, and this literature helps us see the common threads of conservatism, right? It can accommodate and court and uh, shed different and often opposed factions all in the service of minority rule and the erasure of difference. So it's almost commonplace now to say, you know, among uh, leftists that we, we talk about power, but the right has shown that it knows how to gain real power much of the time by any means necessary. Um, and I think the Christian right has played an extremely important role in growing that power and sometimes a preeminent one. Uh, the only example you need there is just uh, what's happened up to and during the Trump presidency, right? So with the incredible, um, uh, base that was formed uh, in white evangelicalism, right? Um, and some pretty incredible things have happened to the Christian right over these last four and a half years, right? Uh, factions have disowned each other. They've you know, melted down over the merits and demerits of liberalism. Uh, some of them have dug into a sort of anti-capitalist social conservatism. 
Um, but despite all this infighting, in the end, there was a successful insurrection in January, and the Trumpist space has emerged as a larger, more coherent, more energized force, and it's not going away, uh, nor is its Christian membership. Um, and I think the, the Trump era was a moment of reckoning for all sorts of Christians, but especially liberal, progressive, and leftist Christians, right? But I think what we saw going into the formation of ICS was that by and large, it had no real idea of how to talk about politics in terms of power, uh, organization, mass movements. Um, I, I don't think it'd be an exaggeration to say that power remains a kind of dirty word for a lot of Christians. Yeah. Um, they tend to prefer moral denunciations, right? Not always, but kind of as a rule. Mm -hmm. um, and this aversion, I think, has, has um, really led to a number of varieties that I think are really um, false starts for any kind of coherent Christian left, um, you know, looking to things like electoralism, to forms of localism, anarchism, even romantic forms of politics, right? Very popular Christian response, I think, to some of the frustrations of American politics is to retreat back into the church, right? Invoke the church as a kind of counter politics, whether through its liturgy or its practices. And this is a very prevalent trend among academic theologians. Uh, people read them. Um, they're really clear about things like consumerism, economic justice, uh, the injustice of racism, homophobia, but just at the moment where their analysis should lead them to advocate for politics that end oppression through building power, they wanna take refuge in equivocations and abstractions about uh, power corrupting the gospel, let's say, or uh, enlightenment rationality uh, that informs modern politics, right? All of this is a way of saying we can't really join mass movements for economic justice, racial justice, uh, socialist organizations, right? Um, this is also true, I think, of some Christians who are mostly theologians and academics who have recently started to advocate publicly for socialism as a preferable form of Christian politics, but they actually spend a lot more time criticizing actual movements of the left or failed socialist experiments or intersectionality than they do actually helping build up politics, right? It's more of a protest against things like liberalism, modernity, disenchantment, than it is really against capitalism. So these approaches, I think, all have the, the, the quality of being a thoroughly moral critique, a critique that actually is vitiated by the refusal of a material analysis and the refusal of building politics with the left in solidarity and through a creative dialogue, right? So I think ICS really is looking to, to build a left, but also through a real uh, grasp and analysis of the way the right builds power, but also prevents certain progressive theologians and activist Christians from being on the left. We want to clear those boundaries and those barriers away. Yeah, the the I would add that the, I mean this like Nancy McLean has has you know articulated this this really vast network of like institution educational institutions, policy think tanks, nonprofit organizations, and that kind of thing, which the right built and the churches, the Christian churches have been absolutely instrumental in in that whole process. So such that it, it in many ways for so many people, right wing politics and Christianity are almost synonymous, um, and and an attack on any of these things is understood as an attack on, on, on Christianity. But it, I think it's also really important to underscore that a lot of the revival of the right, that there's a, there's a way in which the, because of these institutions and the ways that they inter, that they, they are interwoven with one another, there's, there's some things that happen in the theological academy um, and 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 philosophical reflection, Christian philosophical reflection, which the right is much more plugged into, and which informs a lot of what they do, 
in ways that's just not true of the left uh, for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll discuss. The, the left is just not aware of religion and theology in those ways so as to know what's going on. So a lot of what we're doing is a response to that, but it's it's also an attempt to make a public uh, count, uh, a counter power move, right, in many ways. You said a lot that I want to get into there. I guess I want to start, though, uh, with a question about the current moment that we're in and <clears throat> the opportunities that it opens up for an increased dialogue about Christian socialism, because the kind of broad liberal left for what, 150 years longer has often been associated with uh, opposing Christianity and religion in general. There's the famous phrase from Marx about religion being the opiate of the masses, although there's more to that quote than most people yeah, read right. from, but, but right. you know, people associate the soul that of the solace. Of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people associate that with, with that, that is the kind of left critique of, uh, of religion and, and that, uh, you know, religion being associated or the left being associated with rationality and this sort of like casting aside these old superstitious ways of, of religion. And that was, you know, that's been very palpable up until extremely recently. I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago where when the new atheist movement was like really popular and during, during George W. Bush's presidency, right? Christopher mm -hmm. Hitchens like took on this whole athe atheism thing as, as, a, as a huge part of his brand in a way that it hadn't been before that. Uh, and it feels to me like now there is a uh, there's a different moment when when that is not so central to so many people's concept on the left so many people's conceptions of religion they don't feel that need to sort of like uh you know proclaim anybody who believes in any kind of religion as uh imbibing that opiate uh, of the masses right that there's an yeah. openness uh to to what religion might have to say even if people aren't like flocking to churches or something like that there's still yeah. th there's not that feeling that need they need to like beat down uh, people with religious beliefs as, as part of their leftist political practice. Um, not to mention, I think a lot of people are realizing as our world becomes increasingly individualized and atomized and neoliberalized, that institutions like churches are actually really crucial social formations. And they're like, oh, well, actually life kind of sucks without this kind of social formations. So and maybe these yeah. churches had something uh, something going there. So am I wrong to think that that is kind of uh, in the air among this newly reborn socialist left that we have? That's a really good question, Micah. Um, and it, it's an important uh, thing to recognize. It's a very materialist question, right? It's asking the question, where are we actually uh, and and does it does an abstraction like you know socialism requires irreligiosity or atheism uh, hold in this moment or not? What's actually happening on the ground? I think um, a couple of things I would point to. I mean, I mean, Josh and I talk a lot about um, some of the stuff on the history of you know um, religion and Marx, and he can talk a lot about that. I think. But what I would point to is, you know, uh, just what you're saying. Um, I think that you're, you're looking at massive demographic changes, both along the lines of religion and politics. These things are always in motion. But I think the new thing in this moment, um, and I would, I would direct your listeners to, to a great article that was written by Sarah New about two years ago for religion and politics, I think it's called, about what's happening to people that have been raised as Christian and religious folk and are now awakening to this, this, this socialism um, idea, right? Um, there's massive demographic shifts. And I think what's happening here is what we have to understand is 
like individualist spirituality is kind of the modus operandi for a lot of American religion, right? Uh, my experience is of uh, evangelicalism, right? That's in my blood, right? I was raised that way. It's probably as aggressively individualistic as you can get. Um, but this individualistic spirituality is in service to a certain kind of material location and a social status. And I think once the possibility of that location and status starts to wither away, uh, as it has under decades of assault by neoliberalism, as you said, privatization, uh, the rightward lurch of the Democratic Party, this is going to affect the presuppositions of your spirituality, right? Um, I think a lot of the people who grew up religious and who were naturally sheltered from things like poverty and precarity are now starting to see that the religion has the function, right, of propping up elites and propping up reactionary forms of politics. And I think are now forced to uh, connect their, their vital faith, if they still have any faith, to the original ideas of um, their particular religion, right? Uh, so many of these people may not be, as you say, active in their faith life very much. They may not be active in our churches, but they're starting to see, I think, echoes of original ideas about the preferential option for the poor, right? Equality, things like that. Um, you know, th they are starting to connect these things in a vital way because they have to, because they realize they have much more in common, given the conditions of their life, with people who have been historically oppressed, right, than they had even 10 years ago. Yeah, and I would add that I think that it, it has a lot to do with being becoming really frustrated um, with the kind of abstract uh, morality, uh, which which I would associate with with bourgeois religion, really. Um, and 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 I think that we can start to unfold. I think what Marx is getting at about opium of the masses and things like that, if we think in those terms, because what you have. It is is a situation where all all publicly all churches are able to to provide politically in terms of guidance or like moral ideals like regulative ideals of you know justice and love. There's a lot. And progressive churches do this a lot. Um, they talk about uh, inclusivity, um, uh, intersectionality, and things like this. But but rarely is that connected with any sort of concrete political practice. And, and, and this is, we just think this is just absolutely essential and in, in, in terms of being able to realize those goals, they're, they're, they're implicit in one another. And I, I think you're exactly right in seeing that there's a shift because I mean, we've seen this like, um, like Matt Chrisman has been talking about spirituality and the necessity of human connection and stuff, which I was really surprised to hear. Um, but also I think there's a, there is within kind of orthodox Marxism, a kind of fundamental misunderstanding of a lot of what's going on in the Christian idea about God and salvation. Terry Eagleton, you know, is somebody whose Marxist bona fides you can't really question. And he's really good. Like you mentioned the new atheists, um, uh, but he's also really good at sort of clarifying those, the, what Christians are talking about when they're talking about God, what, what they mean when they talk about salvation and the cross. And, you know, Martin Hagland has talked about like this life and stuff like this, but I think Eagleton is a good sort of rejoinder to a lot of that and showing that this sort of otherworldliness of, of Christianity. Um, it's definitely there. I'm not denying that, that that's, it's an important part of Christian history, but it's not fundamental to the ways in which Christians understand uh, what this thing called the gospel is. Um, and so I think all of that's important to, to state. And 
and, and I think if, if we can begin to clarify those terms and, and, and talk about and deepen this conversation, we, we can see that, like, you know, maybe the best of Christian theology can help atheists be better atheists and things like that. And we can understand what's at stake in these, in these conversations. I mean, I think one of the things that I think has gone wrong in the way Marxists have uh, have adopted Marx's own relationship to religion and and the and his writings on it is that there's been this assumption that what he's criticizing is some sort of timeless reality called religion or whatever and uh, you know he's got this ruthless critique of all that exists which I think is hugely important uh, it, I think it's particularly important for Christian socialists as well but there's a conflation between like a, a materialist method. Um, and a kind of a metaphysical materialism. And I think that the best of Marx is deploying something like an imminent critique of, of all social forms in capitalist civilization. And he's particularly criticizing bourgeois religion in particular. Um, and, and, and I think the, the process is to sort of follow him down this road so that you can see how the things that you take for very as very familiar to you slowly become unfamiliar and demystified as you see the ways that they're connected to the world around you socially uh, and materially and all of that I think is consistent with with Christian practice um, but you know it requires deeper conversation it's a it's a it, I mean I, I see him as like a Socratic he's engaged in sort of a Socratic process um, of like helping you to become aware, to recognize what you've misrecognized. And that's vitally important, even for Christianity, I think. So in keeping, in keeping with um, some of the points that you've made or started to make about your sort of vision of Christian socialism and how it differs from other visions of Christianity and other visions of socialism, in fact, I want to ask you about the sort of inherent compatibilities between Christianity and socialism. And I'll say for my part that, you know, I was raised not in a very religious family, but I did go to church a lot when I was a kid, I think partly as a form of like community building, but also like maybe childcare, um, which are actually important functions that the church serves, certainly in a, in a place like Texas, which is where I grew up. Um, and so I'm, I'm saying that to also to, as a preamble for what I'm about to say next, which is that I have had as I think many listeners of the podcast might know, certainly if they follow me on Twitter, I've had a, I've had a pretty rough year. There, there was a family tragedy that took me away from my political work. And so for, for five years leading up to that, I woke up every day and I sort of checked in with the political reality and did what I thought was my role as a socialist responding to things that were happening on the ground. And in the last few months, I've had the occasion to step back from political work and really think about what are the core principles that are animating my politics for the first time, I think. And it's actually been very helpful. And during that, during that time of reflection, I have found myself reading Christian writing for the first time ever as an adult. I think in part because it's helping me sort through what are the things that I believe that come before being a socialist? What are, what are the, 
like basic core beliefs or principles that I have that realize themselves in the form of my socialism. And chiefly among those, I would say a belief in, in common humanity and a sort of radical egalitarianism, which I see reflected in, in Christianity and the message of the gospel. And I, all, and I did when I was a kid. And who knows, maybe the reason I believe that is because I went to church so much when I was a kid that we are all children of God. Everyone alive is a child of God. And that seems to me to be one of the fundamental primary compatibilities. Um, I'm, I'm sure you agree with that, but you probably see more compatibilities between socialist messaging and the message of the gospel. And I wanna hear you talk a little bit about how those two things fit together. Yeah, that's a really great framing, Megan. And there are a lot of important questions and sub-questions in there. I mean, um, I, th I think you're right to say um, that there is a powerful resource in Christianity's recognition of common humanity. Now that's a starting place. I think it's also important to point out that, you know, uh, there is no uh, clear direct line from the Hebrew prophets or the life of Jesus in all of its radicality directly to modern socialism, right? There, there, there couldn't be. But I think it's a question of unpacking some of the uh, core commitments, some of the theological realities inherent in Christianity, and then asking the question, how are those most fully realized uh, within politics, right? And for us within the socialist program, I mean, one work that I've returned to recently is Cornell West's early work, um, Prophecy Deliverance, uh, which is a wonderful text. Uh, and, and it's kind of an early attempt of his to work out a number of different themes at the intersection of radical Christianity, the prophetic Christian tradition, he calls it, um, Afro-American Afro Christianity, um, the way that Christianity grows out of the slave experience, uh, and what he calls progressive Marxism, right? And he looks to Christianity and Marxism both as proposing two things in common. Uh, one is a radical individuality, right? That he sees as being rooted in equality before God. Um, and another is a radical notion of democracy, which he sees as the absolute condition for securing that individuality before God. Um, and, and he does not see uh, individuality uh, in the way that many reactionary Christians uh, do and uh, capitalist economists might. It's an individualism that focuses on capacities, abilities, the way we bring our unique individuality as creators, right, created by God, uh, into harmony with each other, right? So it's a, it's a focus on capacities, abilities, self-fulfillment, right, in community. And he sees in, in this um, an important Christian contribution, right? a Christian idea of individuality has dignity and depravity at the core, right, of, of individual life, right? Uh, dignity in the sense that we as humans can and have the capacity to transform oppressive realities, right? So, so dignity doesn't just involve abstract uh, equality, abstract value, but as creatures of God, we have the ability in our dignity to focus on and change oppressive realities. But we can do this imperfectly, right? Sin is still operative. So he talks about the possibility of tragedy, right? That this human project of challenging and destroying oppressive realities can go very, very badly. I think this is actually highly consonant with socialist egalitarianism, right? Looking for ways that individual life can be fulfilled and, and expanded in community while also recognizing we're not utopians, right? I think there's a very uh, kind of rational chastened sense in socialist politics that you're not seeking utopia, right? Uh, you know, Corey Robin talks about how socialism is not attempting to, um, you know, get rid of all suffering, but just make hysterical misery more ordinary, right? Um, so we're not looking for, 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 for perfection. We're looking for a way of uh, advancing egalitarianism.
egalitarianism, equality, individuality in a way that recognizes humans are capable of transcending much, but also very prone to error, right? Um, I think another thing worth looking at is just looking at the way capitalism orders all of social life around antagonism, animosity. Um, capitalism cannot do without the fundamental competition at the heart of market life, right? And in a very real way, um, when Christians talk about love, this is not an abstract notion of love, right? It's not some sentimental idea of, um, you know, uh, human beings being nice to each other and being without conflict. This is a way of talking about love as a kind of fighting love. There are certain things that can block the realization of love, right? Um, there are conditions that must be in place for us to realize uh, love. And capitalism very often forecloses and combats those very conditions, right? It wants to say that humanity is entirely at war. Um, the mode of life of Jesus, the life of the church and the social relationships uh, exhibits a different kind of life, right? One that is focused on egalitarianism, of sharing, of dignity. And so I think it's really important to look at what Christianity proposes about the, the um, imperative of love and how capitalism absolutely resists the realization of that love for human community. Yeah, I mean, I would say that and this goes back to the question about why did we launch ICS at this particular moment? And I think it's because there's there's a there's a real clarity emerging about the fundamental antisocial nature of capitalism and and how riddled it is with contradictions. And and and, and Christianity is a natural contrast to that uh, because Christianity is inherently social. Um, and. And, and what happens, I think, when, and this is what I meant when I was talking about bourgeois religion, because it, what winds up happening to Christianity when it gets translated into, uh, you know, a capitalist civilization, and I think it's important to see that capitalism is is much more than just a system of production. I mean, it's a, it's a whole, like, the commodity just permeates every mode of, of life, every aspect of life. And, and what winds up happening is that Christian morality becomes, I mean, we've used this term abstract a lot. I mean but but it becomes just abstract it becomes like you you talk about love and what you mean is something like i don't know floating in the air that you know you you love people and that means that you don't hate them or something and and you know this is this is like you know formal legal kind of bourgeois understanding of of what it means to be a person and things like this but the but the fundamental problem is right like Capitalism, in some sense, or, 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 or bourgeois society is fundamentally grounded on this idea of trying to universalize private property and that your personhood is dependent on your ability to own property, which is just a fundamental contradiction. You can't, you can't bind a society together with everyone, every individual's right to exclude everybody else, right? You're going to find yourself moving constantly back and forth between these these connections and this alienation and and your and your social relationships are going to break down and you they're, you're not going to be able to sustain them and as as capitalism expands and grows that that problem just deepens and and we feel pulled in these two fundamentally different directions and and i think that's part of understanding the condition that we're in and it's also the reason why we have to have you know a very keen analysis of capitalism so that we can understand what we're doing and we don't just like take refuge in in some sort of like sentimental nonsense uh, of, of you know i don't know getting back to nature or something like that as though that itself isn't produced by the system uh, i mean 
we have we have on the on our website we have this uh, statement that we call the socialism of the gospel, and um, it's a somewhat provocative title, and and it's a way of taking this idea of socialism itself and and using it to articulate what we take as fundamental about what what Christianity is about. And you know, if you look at the gospels, you see that Jesus. I mean, there's there's not all the gospels are the same uh, in terms of like what uh the ways that they tell the the story of who jesus is and that's what they are they're narrations of, of who this this carpenter is right from nazareth and they tell that in different ways um and but but they all tell this same story about this guy committing himself fundamentally to the most vulnerable of his society and in opposition to the most powerful empire uh, that had colonized his land and and the people that were exploiting those people. And when he announces the beginning of what he's doing, he basically pledges allegiance to them. Um, he says, you know, I'm, I'm here to to feed the hungry, to to release the prisoners, to to do these things. And then he proceeds over the next three years to do that. And 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 he and he never balks. He he just at every moment that things get hot or they get hard, he, he doubles down on that and he never backs away from it and it gets him murdered by the state. And, and the things that he talks about along the way are things like, like if, you, if, if somebody owes you money, your obligation is to forgive it. If you're poor now, you know that you will be happy and you will have more than you need because the rich, woe unto you, right? You know, if, if you're rich, uh, good luck entering the kingdom of God, right? Because it's easier for a camel to do that, right? He, he drives out the money changers in the temple, right? This is a bank, essentially. It's a, it's a way of collecting on debts and things like that, and he drives them out. Um, and he, he associates himself with workers, social agitators, uh, outcasts, prostitutes, and, and, he's, and, and all of which in this way of committing himself to feeding the hungry, healing the sick, all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and when he's murdered by the state, he's murdered as inciting insurrection. And, and what happens on the other side of that is that all of those people that were with him who, who didn't stay faithful to that mission along the way start beginning to talk about the ways in which everything that he was and is continues on the other side of his death, right? That, and, and they start using the language of empire to describe who he is, almost as a parody of Rome. He's, they call him the Curios, the Lord, which is the title that belongs to Caesar. You know, they talk about the, the empire, the, 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 the word, the kingdom of God, right? Basically means empire of God, right? But what does that empire look like? It looks like the forgiveness of debts. It looks like the blessedness of the poor. It looks like all of those kinds of things. And then when, when early Christians began to, to announce that, I mean, essentially the word gospel is all about like announcing, going, it's like the, the, when, when they would win a battle, when somebody would win a battle, they would send somebody back to, to tell the good news that, you know, it was won. And that's essentially what's going on here. It's when they, when, when they begin to say this, it's to say like, it looked, Rome did the best they could to, to, to kill this. But but it continues and it continues in us now. And they use language like new creation to talk about it. They say there is no slave or free in this community, in this body of Christ, right? That we are the body in which he continues to live and continue to carry out this mission. 
Paul says in like Romans eight, that it's, it's not just like in some sort of other world where this happens, the whole earth is actually crying out for this to be realized. And, um, and then, and then, and then you, 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 you baptize people into this com community that's committed to forgiving each other's debts. They, they, they feed one another. Um, they pass the peace, you know, all of these kinds of things. This is not, this is not like otherworldly stuff. And, and the only way that I know how to talk about that, and the only way that I know how to even live into that right now is by, first of all, talking about like op opposition to capitalism, like a real anti-capitalism, because it prevents that from being possible. And it turns it into a parody of itself. And the other is, is to, uh, to literally begin to talk about what it looks like to form human relationships on the other side of this this just fucked up way that the capitalism uh, forms us as human beings. And, and that, that to me that the language for that is socialism because it has to do with the fundamental social nature of who we are as human beings. And that's how, that's how I begin to answer that question. I wonder if you could talk about the biblical injunction against idolatry uh, because for me uh, you know listeners to this podcast know i i am the son of a lutheran pastor whose uh, christianity is still extremely important to me and th this this injunction from the first commandment uh against idolatry has always been central to, to one of the things that I, that I find so valuable about the christian tradition and i always feel like i have kind of like Mark's sitting on this shoulder over here and like Jesus yeah. sitting over here, you know, uh -huh. and uh, not that they're in conflict with each other, but that they're sort of like offering things that I need. I, I need what Mark has to say at one time, but then like, geez, I need what Jesus has to say more at another time. Um, and the whole idea of idolatry, I mean, like the, the you know, people associate the first commandment with like, you know, don't, don't go worship a golden calf or whatever. Uh, but the way that I've always been, taught it by my father was about like always be on the lookout for the things that you are turning into god yeah. that are not actually god uh because those Lutheran, things right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Those, those things will enslave you and they and they yeah. and they'll drive you into sin basically sin in the sense of like being separated from other people and like not wanting to live you know you're not living a life that's in full communion with other people and community with other people uh etc and so uh you know i don't think that marxism has to be in conflict with uh, with Christianity. I don't think it has to be idolatrous, for example. But we all know that there are many examples historically of Marxism becoming idolatrous. I mean, this is you know what what is what is Stalinism? You know, the cult of personality around Stalin. It's not the sort of idolatrous version of Marxism. Yeah. And so, um, for me, that, that that kind of Christian injunction against idolatry is sort of like helpful to me. Um, not 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 that it like challenges the marxist and socialist beliefs that i have but sort of like reminds me to have a kind of spirit of openness about them and not to treat it as, as a religion basically not not like as not be like a fundamentalist for marxism uh my christianity sort of pulls me back from that impulse which is a basic human impulse to go in that direction right um so uh, that's all a big windup to just ask you uh, about what you think, uh, how you see your Christianity and, and that, that Christianity's uh, injunction against idolatry interacting with socialism. Because there's a bunch, I mean, there's what I just said. There's also, you know, like what, cap, capitalism creates all kinds of idolatrous ideologies in us. Nationalism creates all kinds of idolatrous yeah. ideologies. So, so what is that interaction between that 
between the uh, uh, opposition to idolatry from Christianity and in your version of Christian socialism. Yeah, I mean, I would say too that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, the way you put it was that like your Christianity sort of saves your 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 Marxism from the threat of of, of idolatry. But I, I w- the way I would want to begin to answer that question actually is by talking about the way in which Marxism can save. Christianity from from idolatry, because I mean, what I as I mentioned before, what I see is um, and and I do think it's important for me to introduce the caveat here. Marx is very important to me. Um, ICS as a whole is not particularly committed to Marx in any specific sort of way. There's part of the ecumenical aspect of what we're doing is opening up this conversation within the Christian tradition as well as outside. Um, and so I'm not necessarily speaking for ICS as a whole when I talk about this, but I think it's, I, I think Marx is very important because of the, like what I was talking about, about that imminent critique, that relentless critique of all that exists, because um, like there, there are, there are a lot of Christians who are very attracted to socialism. I might use the language of socialism, but think and, and think it's very important to be able to obviate Marx because they see a direct correlation between Marx and Stalinism or the worst of the Soviet Union or something like that, right? As though this is an inevitable outcome of Marx's ideas. But I think that's a, that's a, a, dra- that's a drastic caricature um, of what's going on in Marx. Um, and, and, and they want to be done with them. Uh, and, and in a sense that like um, there's, there's something uh, there's something that's um, idolatrous, right, about Marx in the ways that you pointed out. But I think what's useful in Marx particularly is the way that he talks about ideology, um, how it has to do with the ways that we fail to see that something very familiar to us, something that's integral to the way that we see the world is really just produced by the social world and causes us to take it as natural when it's really just an illusion that's helping to reinforce this system of illusion. And, and so um, he, he, he wants to, to, to begin to, to lead us through a process of being able to, to, to see how what is familiar can become unfamiliar. And so like uh, a lot of the, the socialists, like in, within Christian Christians that I, that, that I've encountered um, or the discussion about this w- among Christians has it's, I mean, I, I joke with Aaron that I, I sort of view it as social, uh, precious socialism, right? Cause it kind of wants to start with a critique from a pure position that, that it understands to be at the root of society, which is somehow outside of capitalism. It's a kind of original natural material reality that needs to be liberated from the oppressive do- domination of, the, the commodity or something like this is technological reason, that kind of stuff. But because it doesn't allow itself to be submitted to this imminent material critique, it remains unable to see how that whole idea is actually produced. This whole idea of outside of capital um, in terms of some sort of abstract uh, domination is internal to the way in which the commodity passes through society and is reproduced by it. Right, like Nancy Fraser talks about, like the realm of social reproduction, and and, and Tithi Bhattacharya. Like, I think this is really, really insightful because you know it's called outside the realm of production, but it's literally produced by the circulation of capital and the commodity in particular. It's this, this sort of fetishizing of the concrete and the material and stuff like this, and it can't see how it's embedded in what's actually going on. And uh, so, 
I mean, walking with Marx through volume one to volume three of Capital is for me like, you know, an anti-idolatrous uh, task, right? It helps me to see how what like um, Isaiah 2.8 says, you know, their land is filled with idols and they bow down to the work of their hands and to what their fingers have made. This That's the whole definition within the Bible about what, what idolatry is. It's this it's you create something and then you set it before yourself and you bow down to it and then it dominates you right like herbert mccabe who's like has been really influential on a lot of us in ics um and and in, and in fact was involved with the group along with terry eagleton that that from which the bias even gets its name but you know he makes this observation that the great hebrew insight is that god is not a god um and, and I think that this gets at that kind of thing, but you can't begin to really understand the depth of idolatry uh, or the critique of, of idolatry um, without really taking that route. Um, and so, you know, all of this circles back in many ways to like the commodity fetish too. You know, it's the way in which the commodity fetish is the way in which uh, capitalism turns the world upside down and the, you know, the entire civilization of the commodity in which our social relations uh, like persons become treated as things and things uh, circulate as though they are in social relations. And this turns the world upside down. So for me, the Christian fidelity to the injunction against idolatry absolutely requires this relentless uh, critique of capitalist civilization, as well as like explicit uh, political action and opposition to it. Because otherwise, I think what you wind up calling God is basically Satan. You guys mentioned at the beginning, obviously, an essential part of any kind of conversation about religion in America. And America has to do with the religious right and the, the power that it is wielded in American society. But there's uh, also the problem of uh, mainline church, like mainline Christianity. Uh, I grew up, you know, as a Lutheran in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which is a mainline Protestant tradition. And, uh, you know, it's liberal, you know, they the invasion of Iraq. They say the right things on, you know, Trump's uh, anti-immigration measures. Uh, and theology, I, I, I really identify with the theology 100%. Um, but the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of, there's a, there's a sort of instinctual aversion to conflict within a yeah. lot of mainline Christianity um there's this idea that like especially now in society like especially with somebody i figure like trump or with you know with fox news it's like there's too much conflict in society already and they see how that kind of conflict is being wielded for reactionary purposes and they their religion is a, is a is a, a push for them to like you know to to make peace with their you know fellow community members rather than to declare war on them so like it's a it's a noble uh, uh kind of instinct i think uh but obviously it, it can clash very strongly with the rhetoric of class struggle which is central to marxism um, and so I wonder how you guys, uh, in, in your deal, I assume you have some dealings with people who have that kind of instinctual aversion uh, to conflict, uh, you know, people who would have progressive politics, but like would really shirk at any kind of discussion of the necessity for class conflict in order to change the world in a progressive direction. So um, how do you how do you deal with that? How do we do class struggle, which is inherently oppositional without 
you know, denying anyone's humanity and, and, and do it in such a way that can put people who uh, are averse to that kind of uh, stoking of conflict uh, at ease or, or make them more comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, Mike, uh, so I grew up in a home uh, that was uh, thoroughly white and evangelical, right? So, so they sat uneasily, not just with class struggle, but any notion of progressive political change, right? Um, but, but I would say that there is um, a similarity, right? Uh, something that does tend to unite mainline liberal Christianity and conservative, very often evangelical Christianity. Um, when it comes to this question, right, um, of disturbing the social order and, and struggle and things like that. I mean, in the end, I think it's fair to say that both segments of Christianity uh, think that advocacy on behalf of the poor and marginalized and oppressed is, is fine. You know, you can preach sermons about that. Uh, you can run charity drives, you can advocate for some measure of redistribution, but once the poor and oppressed start organizing themselves around their own interests, uh, their own experiences of oppression in a way that threatens the status quo, then you've got a problem, right? Then suddenly the question of like, oh, our common humanity becomes really central. Um, you know, I would say a couple of things in response to this. I mean, first, for a Christian who reads the Bible, hopefully, I mean, this notion that struggle, conflict, denunciation violates the spirituality of Christianity. I and mean, this is just like wildly at odds with the way Jesus is portrayed in the gospels, first of all. I mean, <laughs> once you remove the blinders of both liberal and conservative hermeneutics, which let's be honest, do have a, a sort of interest in, in trying to isolate the spiritual core of Jesus and, and maybe less attention to Jesus' historical and political circumstances, right? But once you get those blinders off, it becomes so clear that Jesus's life was thoroughly political, uh, almost constantly in conflict and danger because of that. Um, you know, Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, one of the uh, pioneers of liberation theology, talks about how, you know, when you read the Bible with these blinders on, you get this kind of iconographic Jesus, right? He's just a bunch of empty gestures of stereotyped theological ideas, right? So for me, Jesus was this guy that walked the earth basically to save me from hell, right? And all of his strong political statements were individualized and, and, and packed into kind of a privatized um, message, right? But um, he's not just there as an empty spiritual figure reciting a script, right? Um, Jesus is confrontational and not just in a general way, but he, his interventions and his struggles are always focused on the specific, I would say against the elites, against the rich, against the imperial order. And they are always on behalf of the vulnerable and the excluded and the outcast. And he persists in that, as Josh has said, even unto death, right? Even his death is political at the hands of the Romans on a cross. Um, so I'd say, first of all, I mean, like a reckoning with the way Jesus lives his life and, and for whom he engaged in, in struggle, right? He is not afraid to upset the boat, right? Uh, when it comes to certain people who are vulnerable and oppressed and leading a movement that seeks their emancipation on their terms. Um, but I think then talking about how to do this, you know, first, I think we need to emphasize just how ideological this notion is, right? It assumes that the present arrangement of power, the economy, society, um, just is the way things have to be, right? And, and that really is to sacralize the order, right? It's to say, uh, we're going to sacralize an order where some human lives matter more than others, right? Um, it sacralizes a social order where bank executives, financial leads can tank the lives of millions, without any significant consequences, right? It sacralizes a social order where children and adults can suffer and die from treatable medical conditions, go bankrupt, and medical insurers uh, can rake in more profits and threaten politicians who introduce even the most moderate reforms, right? 
these are conditions that create and exacerbate class struggle. Uh, it's sometimes hidden, it's sometimes explicit, but it shows there is a ruling class in place, right? So the social division already exists uh, between owners and workers, oppressed and oppressors. That produces a conflict. It's not something Christians try to superimpose, right, on a harmonious order. It emerges from the day-to-day -day life of people who are struggling to have their basic needs met. And that's always how class struggle rises, right? It's, it's not envious working people. It's those who are in power who try to keep them down from requesting and demanding the most basic human rights, right? Um, so the division already exists. It's as Herbert McCabe said, class struggle is a fact. The question is how will you respond to it? That's the question, right? It's not whether it's there, it's how will you respond to it as a Christian? Um, and I would say it doesn't quite address your question, though, about how you recognize the common humanity, right, of those when you're in struggle. And I think it is true. I believe Christianity does absolutely insist on a, a call to universal love, right? But I think it also has a unique way of talking about how you retain the humanity of people that you're struggling against, right? Uh, and you, if you get some of this, actually, from Marx's account of the impersonal and dehumanizing dynamic of the market, People are caught in forces they have to respond to, imperatives they have to respond to and react to, right? And I think one thing that ends up happening is that people who are in power, oppressors, capitalists, um, because of those impersonal structural imperatives find their humanity threatened, find their humanity decreased, right? And so I think it's important to say that one thing Christianity can offer here is to say, look, part of the struggle, part of the class struggle is not just to fight for those who are oppressed, but to release those who oppress from their own tools, right? To rehumanize those who are oppressing, right? Again, I think Gustavo Gutierrez here is super helpful. He has a, um, a book called Theology of Liberation, which just has to be on the list, I think, of any Christian socialist. And I would recommend actually the first edition, not subsequent ones, because the first edition included some really powerful stuff about class struggle that was redacted uh, because of the heavy hand of the Vatican, right? And, and th there's a short quote here I'll just read because it it's just gets right to the heart of this. But he says, the gospel announces the love of God for all people and calls us to love as he loves. But to accept class struggle means to decide for some people and against others. The universality of Christian love is only an abstraction unless it becomes concrete history. To love all people does not mean avoiding confrontation. It does not mean preserving fictitious harmony. Universal love is that which in solidarity with the oppressed seeks also to liberate the oppressors from their own power, from their ambition, from their, from their selfishness. One loves oppressors by liberating them from their inhuman condition as oppressors, by liberating them from themselves. So the class struggle to me is something that's inevitable. It's something Christians have to pay attention to, not as something that's extrinsically imposed, not as something they create out of envy, but there because of the existing power dynamics. But part of the Christian call to love and recognize common humanity involves seeing the act of liberation as both being with the oppressed, but also liberating those who are under um, the, the influence of their own oppressive attitudes and tools. I think that's really important. Yeah, I'll add a note onto that, which is that um, I was rereading Michael Brooks's Against the Web. The last chapter of it is on his concept of cosmopolitan socialism, which he was really starting to work out right before he died. And there's a, there's a passage in there that I'll read out loud because I just rustled, rustled it up while you were talking. Um, he says that while it's true that struggling for a democratized economy means struggling against the segment of the population that benefits from the current undemocratic order, it's also true that as Engels put it, 
ending the division of society into contending social classes creates the possibility for a really human morality, universal in character, which I think mm -hmm. is, is pr pretty much precisely what you're talking about as well. Um, but let's talk about the Christian call to love a little bit. So, um, you know, I see people, I see socialists in general as acting from a place of love for humanity. So when people come together because they are inspired by a strong moral vision, they often come um, ready to moralize against each other. That's one endemic problem to the left that we may never be able to fully eradicate. We might need to simply suppress, right? Um, and you know, people, people on the left are not, they're acting from a place of love for humanity, but they're not always acting kindly or righteously in practice toward one another or toward their perceived political opponents. Um, not, not that uh, they should be nice, not that we should be nice all the time, right? But I don't think that we should confuse, you know, wanton cruelty for necessary struggle. And I do yeah. think that there is a little bit of confusion on that front. And I, do, I think a little bit, there's, there's a sense that if the liberal hegemonic idea is that we need to sort of plaster over the divisions in society and all get along, and we know as socialists that that's wrong, that we should adopt a different the exact opposite type of comportment and be like nasty to each other or to people who disagree with us, whether inside the movement or outside the movement or whatever. That's a caricature. Most people aren't really like that all the time, but you do see flashes of it, right? So, so the reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm wondering what socialism can take from the best of Christianity's teachings about how people are supposed to relate to each other. What do you all think about that? What you had to say reminded me of something else from Herbert McCabe, which is where he says, uh, you know, uh, in order to be fully human, you you have to love. And if you do it, if you do it well, if you're successful at it, they'll kill you. Right. So it, me, and he's he's riffing off of like this, this distinction between like lo love one another and the world outside, which will hate you if you do that. And, and, and talking about also what happened to Jesus. And I think there's something really important in that, which is to understand that like that, that if you find yourself in this position of resorting to hate with regard to your comrades in this way, um, you've already in some sense betrayed what you're about. And I think solidarity really is the only hope here because, because of the way in which capitalism drives us apart um, in this way that I was talking about, about this weird way in which you try to universalize private property and things like this. Um, it, the word that Christians use for faith really is describing a relationship with relate with to, to God and and with others. That's really fundamentally about like fidelity. It's solidarity is probably the right word for it. You know, you are just like if you could translate like you're justified by solidarity, right? In a sense, Jesus is solidarity with 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 everyone with with the most vulnerable of society, and your solidarity with Him in that work, and solidarity with God in that. And I don't think the left really understands this basic point very well, um, not just about solidarity, but about um, about the way in which these sorts, this sort of cruelty is is really just also an extension of of, of the, the, the social relations that our capitalism itself produces. Right. I mean, there's in some ways like a joke sometimes that there's nothing really more bougie than ultra leftism. Right. Because it. it there's there it's sort of like this when when you see an ultra leftist saying i told you so uh, right it that that what you've done is never enough i mean it really is just kind of a leftist larping of sorts right it's, it, it it redounds to a defense of the status quo in a certain sense right it definitely is oppositional but it's not actually changing anything it's not actually invested 
concretely in the messiness of solidarity and the relationships that have to be built there and really working through the conflicts that are involved in that. Like, I think the thing is we have to build social relations that don't presuppose this assumption about personhood and freedom and human dignity being tied to oneself being an exception to everyone else. And we have to have concrete social relations that are grounded in solidarity that anticipate and prefigure that life outside of capitalist domination. And so like it, insofar as the left lacks that understanding of community and how to build it and how to sustain it, I think this is something really important about what Christianity can bring to, uh, to these spaces of socialist organizing and to the conversation about what's going on there. Because like the, the very idea of grounding human belonging and dignity not in some sort of abstract idea of human nature, but in regular practices of admitting that you fucked up, of doing the hard work of forgiving each other, sharing your food with each other and your resources and joining together and caring for the sick and inviting other people into those practices, into that kind of solidarity and saying, this is love. This is the most real thing about reality. This is what Christians are talking about. I mean, at least the, the, the best of them. Yeah, and, and, you know, not to make this a Herbert McKay party, but it's what happens when you start talking to uh, Christian socialists. Um, <laughs> at least you know, the two of us. <laughs> at least the two of us, and I can name at least three or four others, maybe. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, Herbert McKay has, has a wonderful um, must-read essay on class struggle that, that's kind of being yeah. rediscovered over the last couple of years. Uh, he's often, uh, you know, claimed and invoked as a brilliant theologian, which he was, but he was also, till his dying day, a committed, uh, fairly orthodox Marxist. Um, and he had some wonderful things to say about how these imperatives of Christian love, of the, the goal of Christian unity, even the unity of all humankind, and the imperative of struggle go together. He looks to the Beatitudes, right? Beatitudes uh, in, in, in the Gospels, where Jesus talks about the form of life he's, he's trying to exhibit and call his disciples to, right? So, so We've heard a lot about the invocations not to strike back, right? Not to insist on your own way, to endure all things. But Herbert McCabe says, you know, these things, uh, being loving, kind, gentle, calm, these qualities are actually very dangerous qualities, right? Yeah. When they're organized around the lines of struggle, right? So th these beatitudes are meant for people who are in struggle. People who recognize that actually it is, as Josh has been saying, the capitalist uh, process that truly and unashamedly is uh, encouraging of greed and, you know, cutthroat behavior and exclusion um, as much as the left often is, right? So, so I think there's something very important to be said for how the Christian Beatitudes help inform um, struggle, right? I think another thing is, you know, Christian churches for all their faults, um, and they have many, there is a, a very fundamental uh, beginning place for being a Christian in the church, which is that you are here precisely because you are a sinner, precisely because you are wrong, not in some kind of degrading, wallowing, individualistic way, but that you have broken yourself off from your common neighbor, from your from your common humanity, and from God to begin from there, right, and then to say, in this common position of being wrong, we're going to struggle for a better better world, for reconciliation, uh, and for liberation. I think that's a very important thing to be able to bring to the table. I'll just say ICS is very much online right now, right? As we're breaking ground um, publicly, uh, social media is a natural place to be. And I have to say, I think some of the qualities of the online left and the kind of ultra left uh, attitude mentality 
is very confusing and, and in some cases a huge turnoff for a growing audience. Like they don't understand having come from churches that talk a lot about human community and belonging, they don't understand how this kind of thing is productive, right? So I think it's super important for us, uh, ICS and those who come to be on the Christian left to recognize that the qualities of forgiveness, meekness, kindness are things that are vital to this movement, not because they allow for a quietistic politics, but because they allow for a politics that's expansive, that is, as you said, Megan, cosmopolitan, right? Recognizing what is common to all of us as human. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, 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 think, I think that's one thing we can bring to the table. And, and I would just like underscore that I think it, it, it means that you have to really have skin in the game with regard to this. Like this is, you can't sort of throw grenades from outside of the room. I mean, the, the work of solidarity, it, it happens with the person in front of you. It, it, love is not a feeling that you have or some sort of idea that you have about another person. It's something that you are concretely engaged in realizing, which involves conflict and it involves tension and it involves... Um, when you have differences about the ways in which you understand things, it's about nevertheless, we stand with one another and we are going to sort through this together in these ways. I mean, like Freire says, you know, every truly revolutionary act is an act of love, right? For exactly the reasons that Aaron was talking about earlier about liberating the oppressor. But also, I think, I think what he's saying there is I think that like just simply because you've acted in a revolutionary way doesn't mean that your act will have been revolutionary. The, the only truly revolutionary act is an act of love. And that's something about which to be, to, to joyfully throw yourself into um, with abandon uh, and, 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 and to, to embrace uh, the, the, the dynamic changes that will happen in you and in your ideas and in the people that you're with as you, as you invest in that. No better way to end a discussion on Christianity and socialism with that uh, injunction to to love. So thank you to both of you. And if people want to check out uh, your work, which I would highly recommend that they do, where should they look? You can go to www.christiansocialism.com. You can find us on Twitter at Smash Mammon. And if you'd like to support us, uh, uh, christiansocialism.com slash support. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you very thank much you. to both of you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.